when we see floods, when we see heat waves, we see how the inequalities are deepened. And that is the core of this climate crisis. Adaptation actions cannot substitute for ambitious mitigation. The less we mitigate, the more we have to adapt. The uh, earlier uh, model was that you develop, you pollute, and then you try to fix the environment, which I don't think is working now. You develop, you pollute, and you can't fix it because we have gone beyond a, a situation where we can fix the environment. You're listening to The Lid Is On. I'm Conor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quinones. We're still outside. We've got chairs this time. We want, we're not on the floor like we were yesterday, so that's an improvement. <laughs> and it's still nice and warm, it very is, busy, yeah. even busier than yesterday. There's a lot of people, actually, today. The, the head of communications of of UN Climate Change said that the registrations are up to 45,000. And yeah, um, almost 30,000 have picked up their accreditation, so they've been here already. And that's a lot of people. You sound a bit tired, Lara, I've got to say, but it's all about youth today. Come on, is it, is it making you feel old? <laughs> that there's all this focus on youth. Uh, no, no, there was just too much activity today, I guess. There's a lot of things happening, a lot of protests. I think it's the day we've seen more protests in the whole, than the whole five days it's going to be since we've been here. Um, of all kinds, uh, mostly, of course, st- starred by uh, young people who were asking about, um, they were asking for a loss and damage fund. Like, we're, this is an Africa Cup and hello plane again. Hello plane again. We are, we are right near the airport, in case you hadn't guessed, and the planes are very low. You can even read the insignia on the side of the plane sometimes. <laughs> yeah, to go back to my point, the youth are, have like a special, let's say, focus on this COP because it's an Africa COP and it's a country that is also a developing country. And like a lot of other developing countries in the world are having to suffer the losses and the damages that climate disaster cause when they're the ones who emit the less. So, um, yeah, that's a big call for today to create a loss and damage fund. And we'll come to that a bit later and we'll hear from the youth activist who you spoke to. It's a twofer though, it's Science Day. And this year's 10 new Insights in Climate Science report was released. Loss and damage again making an appearance. Yep. And I got to speak to a member of the International Panel on Climate Change about how to disentangle science and greenwashing. That was very interesting. But first, let's get back to that report, the 10 new insights on climate science. This is a UN-backed study, comes out every year, and I found it a really handy summary of what leading scientists are thinking right now are the most pressing findings in the climate science world. It's a really great way to unpack what can be, let's face it, a pretty complex subject. So in his remarks at the launch, Simon Steele, he's the uh, newly installed head of UN climate change, he focused on the first insight. We talk a lot lot about adaptation, but you can't just adapt your way out of this crisis. I mean, obviously, adaptation is important and all these discussions around climate finance, they all feed into this. But we have to have these discussions about how to mitigate, how to actually cut emissions and make sure we, in the words of many people here, keep 1.5 alive. Here's what he said. The potential to adapt to climate change is not limitless. And they will not prevent all losses and damage that we have seen. I therefore applaud parties for getting loss and damage onto the agenda here at COP27. And I certainly look forward to a thorough discussion on this issue 
and this is an issue has, whose time has now come. However, this does not let countries off the hook regarding their emissions. As your first insight says, adaptation actions cannot substitute for ambitious mitigation. The less we mitigate, the more we have to adapt. So investing in mitigation is a way of reducing the needs to invest in adaptation and resilience. That means tabling stronger national climate action plans and doing so now. While parties are starting to lessen the emissions gap, it's a drop in the bucket as to what is actually needed. The Egyptian presidency has made very clear we're now firmly in this era of implementation, and that means action. But none of this can happen without data, without evidence to inform decisions and decision-making, or the science that supports programs and policies. That was UN Climate Change Chief Simon Steele at the launch of the 22 10 New Insights in Climate Science report. And we heard him raise that loss and damage issue. And another of the insights is that this is urgent because it's partly about compensating developing countries for the consequences of a crisis that's been primarily caused by emissions from the richer, the developed countries. So as we said before, this is shaping to be the big topic of COP, but don't expect it, unfortunately, to be solved anytime soon. So were there any other of those 10 insights that leaped off the page for you, Laura? Well, yes. I mean, they are, the authors of the report said that tens of thousands of people are dying from climate change right now and that this needs to be taken in the heart of the negotiations. And this is why they make this very, very small, specific summary so uh, they can just hand it to the negotiators. And right now they're in the rooms around us right now uh, can use them. And I guess uh, to answer to your question, like some of the other issues that I think are important are the warnings about that there is an increase in climate migration and also in national security issues that like climate change is um, becoming progressively uh, a national security problem for countries. We talk about climate migration a lot, don't we? And yeah. uh, they were really pushing for, for countries to really anticipate a bit better how they approach this so-called climate-related mobility, which is only going to be increasing as the years goes on. Another one that um, I thought was interesting was the fact that they're not that impressed with the efforts of the private sector to create a what we call a green global economy. They're saying that these sustainable finance practices in the private sector really aren't going far enough. I would really recommend that you take a look. I found it really helpful. The website is 10, as in the figure 10, climateinsights.science. Well, let's stay with science. Earlier today, I met Anjal Prakash. He's the research director at the Bharti Institute of Public Policy in India, where he trains bureaucrats in climate change topics. And he also contributes to the UN's famous IPCC reports. And these are the really authoritative studies that have done so much to raise awareness of how the climate's changing because of human activity and is likely to continue changing in the future. He told me the old problem of climate denial is fading away. He says it's no longer politically correct to deny that climate change is real but it's being replaced by the growth of greenwashing. That's greenwashing by countries and by companies, you name it, making grand claims about their green credentials, which 
don't really stand up to any kind of scientific scrutiny. But we started with a reminder of what makes the IPCC reports so important and so credible. The IPCC process is a very collaborative process. It's all of us coming together and understanding uh, climate change, the shared uh, perspective. All countries, uh, they um, nominate their scientists from the world and then uh, IPCC as a group uh, selects them. Uh, it's based on science uh, and pure science. And the second part is also about uh, this being uh, the outcomes of the uh, reports are actually vetted by the uh, countries of the world, the politicians. But second is also a negotiated process. It is negotiated process between the scientists. You can, and there are many, many ways in which uh, this is sought. So one is definitely the consensus between the scientific community uh, at the IPCC level. But it's also uh, every time the drafts are open up for scientific communities to drip, uh, and, and the policy communities as well as NGOs and activists to uh, read the report and uh, you know, uh, create objections. We respond to every, each and every comment that we receive. It's not politically correct to say that climate change is not there. Well, that's a positive change, obviously, but yeah. is it being replaced by greenwashing? We've been hearing about greenwashing a lot over the last okay. few days and various measures being put in place to, to, to combat that, to stop governments and companies making these outrageous claims about how green they are. Yeah. Is this something you've come across? There's a lot of talk, but there's less action. In fact, one of the wide reasons that uh, loss and damage issues has been brought in uh, to this COP uh, after a lot of reluctance from the countries of the globalized, uh, industrialized north is also um, what I would say uh, an indicator that these issues remain. There's a lot of promises which has happened in, in the Paris uh, Agreement, but uh, nothing has followed uh, in letter and spirit. Um, so greenwashing is definitely what I would say is one of the major issues uh, that one has to watch for. And not only watch for, but we have to take the bull by the horn in a sense that we need to really, really uh, bring it out and say that these guys aren't doing enough, you must do more. Let's talk a bit about India. How would you summarize the way that India's sustainable development plans are going? India has asked for more equitable carbon space. Uh, you know, the uh, earlier uh, model was that you develop, you pollute, and then you try to fix the environment, which I don't think is working now. You develop, you pollute, and you can't fix it because we have gone beyond the level of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a situation where we can fix the environment. What India has done is that it has asked for a space, uh, uh, equitable climate space, that means by 2070 they are saying that we are going to go to net zero. But in between there are a lot of policy changes which have happened which I actually am quite laudable about. Uh, the solar mission is there, the wind mission is there, so there are a lot of work which is happening. You have to also understand that we have gone through a very long process uh, in which, uh, you know, uh, last 70 years we have, we just, it's just a small country, a uh, country which is newborn, in a sense 70 years is not a big history of independent India. Uh, so we need time to develop, in a sense to a reach level. See, also the abject poverty that we have, we have been trying to brought pe bring people out of the poverty and that is, process is uh, definitely climate intuitive in a sense that you need more and more energy, uh, access for poorest, the poor people, and that would need to certain changes in the climate uh, process. But we are very conscious as, uh, as Indians, and I think as society and as people, we are very environmental conscious. So our per capita emission is still lowest in the world. Uh, that means as a society, we are not very, uh, uh, you know, we are consumptive, in a sense that we use resources to the last breath. We can develop without polluting the environment, and there are ways and means to, to do that. Uh, I guess that is one uh, you know, message I will have for the Indian government to work towards that.
That was Anjal Prakash, the research director at the Bharti Institute of Public Policy in India, explaining those really difficult trade-offs that rapidly developing countries like India and China have to make between taking huge numbers of people out of absolute poverty and finding ways to keep emissions down. Now, Lara, we haven't forgotten about the youth, even though they're making us feel old and decrepit. They say you're only as old as you feel, so that makes us about, what, 105 right now? Absolutely. No, I'm part of the youth movement. Good for you. Keep telling yourself that. That's, I'll, I'll tell myself. <laughs> oh, I'm also one of the youth then in that wow. case. No, no, you're definitely not part of the youth. I think you're ready for Medicare in the U.S. <laughs> How dare you? I'm cancelling this podcast. I'm cancelling you. You are now officially cancelled. Uh, no, I cancel you, remember? I'm the youth. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> That's a flavour of the kind of thing that was going on in the youth pavilion today. No Greta Thunberg this year with her blah, blah, blah famous speech, but... There are a lot of young people and children here this year. There have been vibrant discussions and roundtables going on since actually before the COP began. There was a, a youth COP, wasn't it, just before this? And yeah. What, what have you been picking up today on your wandering around your travels today? Anger or enthusiasm <laughs> or both? What's it been like? Oh, it's different. I feel like the youth movement has shifted a little bit compared to what I saw in Glasgow. Of course, in Glasgow, it was very angry. It was very against greenwashing and uh, words that still resonated today at many of the protests that happened. But I feel like they're changing a little bit the discourse in the sense that they're so very well organized. And they're talking so much about climate finance. And and you're here to um, a young Argentinian climate activist that I spoke to today. And, and you can hear from his words how, how he speaks about social justice and and the financial and ecological debt that is owed by the countries of the north to the countries to the south, of the south. Bruno Rodriguez, a 22-year-old climate activist from Argentina, very high profile. Uh, he's the founder of Youth for Climate in his country, and he's also the leader of the country's Friday for Future movement. Here's what he said. Loss and damage is a topic that has been delayed in climate conference edition after climate conference edition. And it is not only related with the compensation that we need for our peoples in the global south, because we are the least responsible of the climate crisis, but we suffer uh, its worst consequences. So I think it is not only related to this, it is related to the asymmetries, the colonial causes that unleash the climate crisis. And that is why the youths, especially from the global south, are taking uh, a lot of responsibility, striking and protesting for this issue. My message to world leaders as Argentinian, I'm from Buenos Aires, I'm from a country that right now has near uh, its, uh, half of, the, of its population in poverty. My demand is about finance, climate finance, to recognize these asymmetries between global north and global south, and for those countries that are more responsible of the climate crisis, to invest in our communities, to pay their ecological debt with our peoples so that we can build industrial capacities to push for a sustainable and just transition process. What is the most painful thing of climate change for you? The most painful thing about climate change is related with the constant and systematic violation of human rights, 
when we see floods, when we see heat waves, when we see how the worst impacts of this crisis are materialized in our territories and communities, we see how the structural, social and economic inequalities are deepened. And that is the core of this climate crisis. It is in our countries, in the global south. So I think to de-announce the fact that this crisis was unleashed because of the colonial process is the most important thing that climate activism and civil society has to do in here today. How do you see your future right now? From 2019 to here, I think with a pandemic in the middle of that period, I think we learned a lot of lessons about how uh, radical our narrative has to become. I come from a country that it's part of five centuries of pillage of history in the Latin American region. And that is profoundly related to the kind of activism that I want to push. A popular one, a decolonial one, an anti-racist one, an activism that takes into account the class issues. And this in the global scale, I think it is the most important thing to do. Many, change, many changes have happened, many things have changed. and. Those things are related with the collective imaginary towards climate, uh, climate change, that it's a topic that it's not separated from social justice and economic justice. We are in a very particular COP this edition because right now the COP has been held in Africa. And that is very important and powerful in symbolic terms because the Egyptian uh, government, when the COP started, was very... Um, very uh, furious and I would say as well uh, very willing to put into the agenda, the official agenda, the, theme, the topic of loss and damage. So that gives us a particular context in which to politically intervene. I do believe that our countries, uh, especially from Latin America, have to come together and say that enough is enough. We need to be recognized as uh, accreditors of the debt that the global north uh, is owning to us. There is a financial debt that makes us to profoundly to deepen our uh, natural resources, economic activities that are intense in this use of natural resources in order to gain payment capacity so that we can pay our debtors, our financial debtors. And that has to be cancelled because it is much more wider, it is much more powerful and important, the ecological debt that was contracted by the North with the South. We are in a race against time and the only way we can combat in that race is through political and popular organization. We need to build grassroots movements that take on the 1% that is uh, be beginning to feel the advantages of being the 1% uh, and um, taking advantage of the loss of our territories. And I do believe that our generation has something to say in that process of profound inequalities, social and economic inequalities. If we struggle in the present, I do believe very strongly that the future is ours. That was Bruno Rodriguez, the founder of Youth for Climate Argentina, speaking on the Science and Youth Day. And tomorrow, God, it's Friday already. We've been here for over a week. I mean, I feel like it's been long, but now that you mention it, it feels fast as well. But I feel like we're getting into the rhythm of things now. I guess so. And we're getting used to the planes. Maybe we won't even hear these planes in a few days' time. <laughs> we'll be so used to it. I think it's a little hard to ignore them. And I think it's time for us to do our own stock take of how the first week has gone. We're going to welcome 
Back on the show, uh, Selwyn Hart, the UN Secretary General's advisor on climate change. He's going to be giving us his take on how things are going. And we'll hear from a negotiator as well from Trinidad and Tobago. She's been doing this for 12 years. Imagine that. Wow, 12 that's a long, cops. long time. And she's really going to give us that long-term view of how this process works and how complicated it all is. That's it from us today. Have a great day, stroke evening, wherever you are in the world. You've got to get on and do your newsletter. Subscribe to Lara's newsletter if you haven't already. It's very informative. And of course, if you haven't, like and subscribe to this podcast. Back again tomorrow.